0: David Schneiderman, Associate Dean of the Faculty, Professor of English, and Director of the Center for Chicago Programs here at Lake Forest College. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Lake Forest College, and my great honor to present the first of two 10th District Democratic Congressional Voter Fora, co-sponsored by the college and the Illinois 10th District Democrats, more commonly known as 10th Dems. We've had the pleasure of partnering with 10th Dems on tonight's forum with Brad Schneider and on a February 10th forum with his primary opponent, Nancy Rotering. Are you guys hearing feedback on this? I'm hearing a little, no? I'm going to put it back a little bit. Let's try that, Okay. In a few moments, a representative from 10th Thames will speak about their organization, but first I want to make a few announcements and offer a short uh, introduction to what we're going to do tonight. Let me begin actually with the announcements. Lake Forest College events are always free and open to the public. We welcome you to visit with us again for any of our community events. And on the table back by Jenny Larson, Jenny, could you raise your hand, there is a list of community events. If you live in the area, you might have got a brochure in the mail, uh, which is the same one that's on your chair, and that lists all sorts of interesting things that are happening at the college. We welcome you and your friends to come anytime. It's free. Uh, So come and please join us. The same brochure that I'm mentioning also offers details of a wide array of summer offerings that we have at the college. Those fall into three main groups. Summer courses, undergraduate courses, community offerings, such as our popular By the Lake program. We have baseball by the lake, writing by the lake, and our camps and conferences, which include our Bard College-affiliated writing and thinking workshop for high school students, and many popular computer and athletic camps for younger children. So if you're looking for something to do this summer or your grandchildren or anywhere in between, uh, please check out the college. For our current students in the audience, you'll find the Career Advancement Center in the back and you can uh, talk to Simaret Smith there about internship and career opportunities and everyone in the room can talk to the Schneider for Congress campaign about volunteer opportunities today as well. Tonight's event depends upon many people and I want to thank our partners in 10th Dems, particularly Lauren Beth Gash, Bonnie Berger Neal and Barbara Altman. I also want to thank the many people who assisted us here at Lake Forest College, uh, particularly Chair of Politics Siobhan Maroney who is on the dais. You'll hear more about her in a little while. I also extend thanks to Jenny Larson, the Assistant Director of the Center for Chicago Programs who mightily handled the event's logistics. Thanks also to Rick Cohen and our public safety staff for providing services this evening, David Levinson and LIT for the live streaming. Uh, There's more I'll tell you about in a moment, but first I want to pause and introduce Barbara Altman, managing vice chair of 10th Dems, to come say a few words and hopefully avoid the feedback that I'm getting. So, Barbara.
1: Well, thank you, Davis. I'm also short and semi-amidextrous, but I'll do my best. Um, In addition to being um, a managing vice chair of 10th Dems, I'm also the editor of 10th Dems monthly newsletter, the 10th News. Some of you may be sitting on our most recent edition of 10th News. If you want to see more of those, um, just go online and uh, click the sign up button and they will come to you in your inbox the first of every month, sometimes even maybe a day before, occasionally a day after. I wanna thank Davis for acknowledging um, everyone who's put this event together. 10th Dems is really pleased to have partnered with Lake Forest College for this event, and I'm delighted to see so many people from the community have turned out, and um, there may even be some students out there. Um, We are pleased to welcome you for this Brad Schneider. Forum, and we hope to see you again in two weeks when Nancy Rotering will also appear. And I urge every one of you to be sure to vote in the March 15th primaries for one of these excellent candidates. Democrats are really fortunate. You can't go wrong, but learn about the candidates, make your choice, and then vote. 10th Dems is a grassroots political organization. Our goal is to elect a Democrat to serve in Congress representing the 10th district. And our broader goal is to elect Democrats to all offices within the 10th district from President of the United States to County Board to um, uh, 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 Water Reclamation District. Um, I want to recognize among the many 10th Dems volunteers who greeted you, our um, founding chair, former state representative Lauren Beth Gash um, from Highland Park, Bonnie Berger-Neal, our co-chair from uh, Wildwood Grays Lake, and um, I also want to acknowledge Our other co-chair who wasn't able to be here tonight, Marguerite Campton of Northbrook. Um, One of the reasons we're so pleased to partner with Lake Forest College is that 10th Dems has its own university. We don't have a football team or a campus or a student body, um, but we do have a wonderful uh, shield, chevron, whatever you call it, that every good college should have. And um, as it says, we're a political party school and uh, we even have a Latin motto that I invite you to enjoy. Um, We sponsor events under that logo and upcoming 10th Dems events include a uh, watch party as the returns come in from the Iowa caucuses. That's gonna be Monday night at a private home in Bannockburn and there are sign-up sheets at the back table. Finally, Um, We are also going to have, and very important, a post-primary unity event on March 17th. We don't have a location yet, but um, that is going to be very important because whether Brad or Nancy emerges, all Democrats are gonna be out there supporting them, I hope. Finally, if you're a student or know a student, you should also know that 10th Dems has wonderful internship and volunteer opportunities. Um, There is information on the back table And even if you're not a student, you're welcome to volunteer, and there's information for that at the back table. And you're welcome to talk to me or Lauren or Bonnie or any of the other 10th DEMS volunteers during the post forum reception. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Barbara. Okay, so let's talk about how the event tonight is going to go. The forum will begin with a short statement from Brad Schneider, and then it will proceed in two parts. The first will be no more than 30 minutes and will feature questions asked by our faculty moderators, Siobhan Moroni, whom I previously mentioned, and Associate Professor of Politics Jim Marquardt. Professor Marquardt will ask questions about foreign policy and global issues, and Professor Moroni will ask questions about domestic issues. Those questions have in part been determined by questions that folks who are in the audience tonight submitted through our registration system. I want to introduce our moderators. Siobhan Maroney is an associate professor of politics and a resident of the 10th district since 1993. Her courses cover the subfields of political theory and American politics. While her previous scholarship covered early American educational thought, more recent scholarship has involved the intersection of American home design and familial relationships. Jim Marquardt is associate professor of politics and chair of the International Relations Program at Lake Forest College. He holds a PhD in political science from the University of Chicago, a member of the Lake Forest College faculty since 2002. Jim has published a book and articles on contemporary US foreign policy. He is currently researching a book on the politics of openness and transparency in American foreign policy under President Obama, and that reminds me, not on the script that he's teaching two courses this summer, one is on Obama's foreign policy, and one on terrorism and counterterrorism. so just to give you a sense of what's going on here. The second part of the forum will be questions from the audience, and this will last no more than 30 minutes, perhaps less. I'll introduce that format before we begin the second portion of the program. We will conclude afterward with a small reception to speak with Brad in an adjacent space, which is just through the breezeway toward where the bathrooms are, and we'll lead you over there when we're done. Before we begin, we have a few pieces of business to discuss. First, please turn off or silence your cell phones. I always forget, so take a moment, please, and do that now. Second, please do not record, video record or tape the event this evening. It's being live streamed right now, and it will be archived for later viewing, so we are asking folks not to do any recording. Third, we ask that you be respectful of our candidates, our candidate, their time, and the mission of Lake Forest College. It says in part, quote, we encourage students to read critically, reason analytically, communicate persuasively, and above all, to think for themselves. We expect all questioners to comport themselves in a manner that respects our more than 150 years of operation as a place of higher learning. As audience members, we may not always like what we hear and we are free to disagree, but we hold ourselves to high standards of ethical communication. We thank our guests for their help in further modeling those behaviors for our students and the viewers at home. Lake Forest College endorses neither candidate in this race and simply wants to provide a space for discussion with each candidate. Accordingly, I am now going to read an introduction submitted by Schneider for Congress of the candidate. We want you to hear how the candidate describes himself through his campaign, but this should in no way be construed as political speech by the college. Again, the Jimi Hendrix feedback here. From 2013 to 2015, Brad represented the 10th District of Illinois in the 113th Congress. Brad is committed to core democratic values and led job creation efforts through his service on the House Committee on Small Business. He proudly fought to protect Social Security and Medicare, a woman's right to choose, a healthy, sustainable environment, and full equality for the LGBT community. Before serving in Congress, Brad had a career in business that spanned more than two decades. Brad has deep roots and a long record of dedicated service in and for the community. Among his many commitments, he has been very active with the Jewish United Fund, Jewish Federation of Metropolitan Chicago. Brad earned his bachelor's degree in industrial engineering from Northwestern University in 1983 and his MBA from Northwestern in 1988. Brad and his wife, Julie, have lived in Deerfield for almost 25 years, where they have created a home, built their careers, and raised two sons, Adam, 22, and Daniel, 21. Thank you for suffering from our, through our long introductions. You are clearly people used to political discourse. I now ask you to welcome Brad Schneider.
2: Is this tape down no. So. no. if it's okay I'd rather come out in front of you if, if that's okay uh, good evening everyone good evening. thank you all for coming out uh, on a cold evening I know there's a lot of places you could be I'm glad you came to be here tonight and give us a chance to have a, a what I hope is really a, a conversation I am Brad Schneider I am running to represent the 10th district of, of Illinois Right here we are in the heart of. And I am going to ask tonight for your support as we go on. But before I go forward, let me talk about uh, the last election for a little bit. In 2014, the National Republicans spent more money against me than any congressional Democrat in the country. Now, you might ask yourself why that was. Their commercials at the very start criticized me for being a staunch defender of the Affordable Care Act because I believe that every American should have the should have access to quality, affordable health care. Maybe it was they attacked me for my position, believing that in the absolute every woman should have a right to make her own choice about her own body. And I was so very proud of my 100% rating from both NARAL and Planned Parenthood. Perhaps they attacked me for my work on the environment, my dedication to get funding for the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, the A I got from the Sierra Club. If not the A, maybe it was the F I got from the NRA, for standing up to the NRA and calling for major legislation to reduce gun violence in this country, including universal background checks and a a, a ban on assault weapons. But at the end of the day, I think the reason the Republicans attacked me so vigorously is because they know and they felt that I was taking the fight to them. And it's that fight that I believe is going to help me win this election in November. I look forward to getting back to Congress to continue the fight for our values because I know in my heart that this district was better served when I was in office with me and my team, many of who are here, working on behalf of our constituents and better represented by the votes I took in Congress. Let me now tell you a little bit about me. Uh, Davis, thank you for the introduction. Um, My story is not too different from the typical American story. I come from a family of immigrants. My great-grandparents all came from Europe. Not atypical was the story of my grandmother Molly. Her family fled the pogroms of of Russia, Tsarist Russia, in the early 1900s. Jewish family making its way across Europe. They finally got to England and they got passage on a ship to the United States. Fortunately, my Uncle Sam, my grandmother's younger brother, got sick and they did not take the Titanic that week. They came over a week later. If not for Sam, I guess I wouldn't be here. They came, they were welcomed in this nation, they were welcomed as refugees into a nation not speaking the language, not knowing this place, but they were welcomed with open arms. And it's that experience for me that tells me we need to continue as a nation that welcomes refugees, that continues to say, as it does at the Statue of Liberty, give us your tired, your your hungry, your poor. We are a nation of immigrants. We are a nation that reaches out to those who are fleeing oppression. It's how we were founded. We have to continue with that story. But let me continue with my family story. My grandmother came. They made it to Colorado. All my family was there. She later went on to become the matriarch of our family. She had six children, including my mother, 18 grandchildren, including me. My grandmother was the wisest person I know. She taught me that you treat everyone the same, whether they were a prince or a street sweeper. She taught me perhaps the best lesson for politics. You have two ears and one mouth. Use them in proportion. <laughs> my mother is the one who taught me my progressive values. I remember in 1968 canvassing with my mother. I was seven years old for Hubert Humphrey. I remember election night that year crying like a baby. Now, I don't think I understood the real ramifications for me. It was as if the Denver Broncos had lost another football game, which back then they did all the time. But it's where I got my start. And is that tradition that I've been proud to carry on forevermore. My father, my father taught us that you stand on your principles. You do what's right no matter the cost. And I'm proud to come from that family and I'm proud to carry on the tradition that they gave to us. I came to Chicago in 1979 to go to Northwestern as was mentioned before. I got my bachelor's degree in industrial engineering and a master's degree uh, in business from Kellogg. But the most important thing I took away from Northwestern was my wife Julie, where we met in business school. We met in 1988, we got married in 1989, we moved to Deerfield in 1991. It's hard to believe that we've been here for 25 years. We did build our home there, we made our careers here, and we raised two great children. My son Adam is here. He graduated college last year, and I'm proud to say, I'm gonna embarrass you Adam, he goes into the Navy for Officer Canada School in 10 days. I'm gonna miss you a lot. And our son Daniel is at a school not too different. Thank you. (laughs) My son Daniel is at a a college in in Allentown um, called Muhlenberg, not too different from Lake Forest College. Both of them are getting great educations in college, but they're getting great educations in college because of the education they got from their teachers here at home. Perhaps that's why, and the education I got, and my sisters got, and Julie got, that's why I'm such a dedicated, passionate supporter of education, believing that every kid should have an opportunity for a quality education wherever they live, and that our teachers need to be supported with the tools and resources to make sure they give our kids the best education possible. That's who I am and where I come from, but that doesn't tell you the, the rest of the story. I believe in three things. I talked about family. The second facet of me is community. I was raised on the maxim that if I'm not for myself, who will be? But if I'm only for myself, what am I? So I've always been involved at home. That means coaching the boys baseball and basketball, or soccer teams. It was involved in their schools, volunteering. It was working in our synagogue. More broadly, I'm involved in the Jewish Federation of, of Chicago, American Jewish Committee on the board of, was on the board of Business and Professional People for the Public Interest, involved with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. I've always been involved in my community because that's the way I was raised, and hopefully, the way I raised my kids. And I think that's the way we make a difference. And I think that's what takes me to Congress in this idea that we have to give back to our country this commitment to service. The third facet after family and community is career. I spent actually almost 25 years in business, primarily as a management consultant, working with small and medium sized businesses, the businesses that make up the fabric of the 10th District. I did strategic planning and and succession planning, bringing in the next generation. And for me it was important because I love looking to the future, but I also know that the future depends on making sure the next generation is ready to take over. And so I'll close this part where I talk about what drives me is the sense that the reason I decided to run for Congress, as Adam and Daniel were leaving for college, as I was looking at my career and saying I've accomplished almost everything I've done, I looked at our nation and I saw that we faced a lot of problems. A struggling economy still at that point and still today struggling to recover from the recession of 2008 an environment that is at risk and there is no doubt climate change is real and climate change is one of the greatest threats to our existence as a nation and a planet an education system that is failing too many kids we have school, some of the best schools here in the 10th district but we have some of the worst in the state here in the district as well that's just not acceptable I could go down this long list of problems but then I looked at Washington and I saw what was happening in Congress, the gridlock and the infighting and the partisanship and all the problems that we need to address as a country were being ignored by our Congress and I said if we don't start tackling these problems, if our generation, I'm not talking to the students, I'm talking to the parents and grandparents, if our generation doesn't tackle these problems then our kids don't stand a chance. And the American promise, the idea that each generation gives to the next a future that is more prosperous and more secure than what our parents sacrificed to give us That American promise is at risk. And that's why I ran for Congress in 2012. And with the help of many of you in this room, we won the first time in 32 years that a Democrat represented the 10th district. We won and we made a difference. We went and we fought. The very first speech I gave on the floor of Congress in 2013, against many people's advice because they said, you don't take on the big guns. No pun intended, you don't take on the big guys because they're coming after you. The very first speech I gave was about reducing gun violence in our country. I stood on the floor of the House as a freshman member to the world it may not have been an important speech but to me it was critically important because Uncle Sam who I mentioned who saved our family by getting sick and not taking the Titanic in 1942 an assailant walked into his office and shot him dead I'm named after that man I carry the legacy of Sam to fight and make sure that we can reduce the gun violence in our country and I have a cousin Jeff who took his own life with a gun suffered from mental illness his entire adult life, but because he was able to get his hands on a gun, he was able to take his own life. These are the things we're fighting for. I see Davis wants me to wrap up and get to questions. These are the reasons I'm running for Congress, and these are the reasons people like eight mayors and and, uh, town presidents, seven senators, state reps, Tony Prepwinkle, Secretary of State Jesse White, Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, over 100 elected officials and over 10,000 grassroots endorsers, have supported me, endorsed me, and want me to be your next congressman. Thank you very much.
3: So um, I'll be asking the first question on uh, foreign policy. Uh, Once again, thanks for coming to the college. Uh, Several weeks ago, the United Nations announced that Iran has completed the necessary steps to restrict its nuclear program. Uh, in accordance with the international agreement negotiated between Iran and the United States and other countries, including many on the United Nations Security Council, Iran has placed 13,400 centrifuges in storage. It has exported 98% of its low-enriched uranium to Russia, and it has removed the core of the Iraq heavy water nuclear reactor. By doing so, Iran has undermined, at least for the foreseeable future, its ability to obtain the necessary fissile material to develop nuclear weapons. Now, in response to this announcement by the United Nations, Secretary Kerry had this to say, and I quote the Secretary, today marks the moment that the Iran nuclear agreement transitions from an ambitious set of promises on paper to measurable action in progress. Today, as a result of the actions taken since last July, the United States, our friends and allies in the Middle East, and the entire world are safer because the threat of nuclear weapons has been reduced. So my question, uh, do you agree with the Obama administration's claim that the world is safer because of these developments? Moreover, do you count yourself among those who contend that with this deal now in place, relations between Iran and the US are headed in the right direction after 36 years of mutual distrust and hostility?
2: Oh, good. I thought there might be more. I was keep track. I'm going to stand up again if, if that's okay. Um, look, on, on January 16th we achieved implementation day. Uh, that was the accomplishment with under the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Agreement between Iran and the P5 plus 1, the five members of the uh, pr- five permanent members of the Security Council plus Germany to roll back Iran's nuclear program. These are most welcome developments. As you said, they've moved, they've mothballed most of their centrifuges, not all. They have exported the vast majority, 98% of their enriched uranium, and they have not just removed the core reactor from the Iraq, uh, heavy water reactor, but they have filled it with concrete, and it's going to be a new design that will slow it down. For all the hard work that got us to this point, however, far more hard work lies ahead. Iran is still a very dangerous nation. You need only look what's happening in Syria, what's happening in Yemen. They're they're funding and arming the Huthu uh, rebels. What's happening with Hezbollah in Lebanon? Question about Hezbollah activity in Latin America. Uh, Iran is still a state sponsor of terrorism. Iran is still one of the worst violators of human rights. Has executed more people this year at a rate faster than they have in a number of years. Iran is still a very dangerous country. I think, I hope, everyone in this room can agree that we're united in ho- in wanting to make sure that the JCPOA, the Iran agreement, succeeds, not just for the next 15 years the terms of the agreement, keeping Iran away from a nuclear weapon, but for the 15 years after that and forevermore. My commitment is that we have to work with this deal with all the concerns everyone has about, and I have many concerns, We have to make sure that this deal succeeds. I was honored in Congress to be on the Foreign Affairs Committee. I was privileged to be selected by Steny Hoyer, the number two Democrat, the Democratic Whip, to be part of a four-man, four-person, it happened to be all males, but four-person work group that included the senior Democrat on the Foreign Affairs Committee, the senior Democrat on the Middle East North Africa Committee, Henry Waxman, who had been there 40 years, and one freshman, me because of my experience and insight and understanding of the issues in the Middle East. I know that this country has to be committed to policing and enforcing the Iran nuclear agreement for 15 years and 15 years beyond that. I'm committed to making sure it works, and I'm going to Washington to make sure it happens again. Thank you.
3: Yeah, um, and my follow-up, when this deal was announced last year, uh, what was your position, um, and has your position changed at all in the last uh, number of months?
2: It hasn't changed. When the, when the deal was announced in the summer, I was critical of the deal. I had grave concerns that the deal, as it was structured, ha- had gaps that would make it harder to, enforce, to police and enforce this agreement over the next 15 years. I had concerns that it lasts only 15 years. I was worried that the way the deal was structured in, in dealing with ballistic missile, Iran's ballistic missile program, and they have fired two ballistic missiles tests since the deal was announced, Iran's conventional weapons um, program, and they're shipping weapons in, around the entire region, their support of state terrorism, that it had the risk of leading to greater instability in an already dangerous and chaotic region. I believe then, and I believe today, that there are things that the administration can and should do with Congress with our allies, the Europeans, and even with the Chinese and the Russians, that will close the gaps and reduce the risk. I believe, as I said before, for all the hard work that has gotten us here, and I supported the effort to do negotiations, to try to find that peaceful solution, we have moved forward, but the the work ahead is going to be far harder than the hard work that's gotten us to where we are today.
4: Congressman, by most measures, the American economy has approved in the last couple of years. We know that um, housing prices are increasing, unemployment is down, uh, the Fed has raised interest rates, but in a lot of ways, Americans don't feel this improvement, and that is because of stagnant wages, which, of course, disproportionately affect working class and middle class families. I'm going to ask you to do two contradictory things, be specific and be brief, and tell us what you can do specifically to raise wages in the united
2: states Uh, that's a, a critical question i travel the district i talk to people and you're absolutely right they, I hear it all the time. The numbers on the economy may look good, but I'm not feeling it. People around the district are feeling it's harder to make ends meet. It's harder to pay for college. Uh, when you see, and this is the, where the biggest difference between me and I think the Republicans and Bob Dold are, their budget would end the Medicare guarantee. They would uh, cut the SNAP food stamp program by 120 billion. Cut Pell grants, making college less affordable for families who are trying to put their kids on the path to the middle class they feel that the decks stacked against them the, it, the, the pathways to middle class are either blocked or even closed I do believe there are things very specifically we can do to get our economy growing and working for the middle class again I believe you have to break away from the trickle-down econ- economics of the Republicans over the last thirty years and go to the middle-out economics that will lift our middle class I'll start with growing our manufacturing base in 1979 when I graduated high school our, our I'm going to go back, sorry, 1983 when I graduated college. Manufacturing represented 22% of our economy. It is now down to half that, 11 to 12%. Okay, manufacturing jobs aren't just good, strong-paying jobs. Every manufacturing job accounts for between two and a half and five additional jobs. We need to bring manufacturing back. We do that by making sure we have skilled workforce. I was proud the first piece of legislation I introduced in the Congress was the America Works Act. 600,000 manufacturing jobs are open in this country because people don't have the skills to fill them. The America Works Act, which was incorporated into the Workforce Investment Act that passed Congress, would take work with community colleges, technical schools, and industry to make sure that the lessons and skills being taught in those schools match with the skills and, and talents these companies were looking for and to close that that skills gap. We grow our manufacturing by f- addressing the deficit we have in our infrastructure. We're barely f- raising enough money to maintain our infrastructure while countries around the world are building new infrastructure, new roads, airports, seaports, rails, high-speed rails, the things that allow products, goods, and services to move at a 21st century rate. And we're still running on rail lines that were built in the 19th century. We need to invest in infrastructure. We need to invest in education. We need to invest in innovation. If we do those things, we'll create more quality, well-paying jobs, jobs that are of a multiplier effect that will create even more jobs and start lifting the wages and the living standards. Because while we're at 22% of manufacturing in 1983 to 11% manufacturing today, the median income of working families has gone down from 1983. That's just not acceptable.
4: Do you support raising the minimum
2: wage? I do, and I was proud to vote to raise the minimum wage when I was in Congress. I'll say it was a simple principle. I don't think anyone should work full-time in this country and live below the poverty line. And I think if we can have a situation where people are no longer working two and three jobs just to make ends meet, you'll have parents home helping their children with their homework or coaching their baseball and soccer teams, as I had the opportunity to do. It'll make for stronger communities. It'll make for a stronger economy. So, yes, I do support raising the minimum wage.
3: Thank you. Back to foreign policy. Uh, Last December in Paris, the United States and a host of other countries, uh, both developing countries and developed countries, uh, committed to deep reductions in future greenhouse gas uh, emissions, uh, which the scientific uh, community's consensus says is the main cause of climate change. Uh, What are the various policy proposals that you would endorse as a member of the House of Representatives for the United States to reach its target which is a 24 to 26 percent reduction in our emissions below 2005 levels. From
2: 2005, right.
3: Uh, by the year 2030. Uh, specifically, would you support a carbon tax in order to uh, encourage new sources of energy other than those that are carbon based?
2: So, uh, first, I applaud the, the progress that was made in Paris. Against expectations, many in the world didn't think we could actually get to an agreement and the fact that the entire international community, without exception, because any one country could have vetoed that agreement, came to agreement is a significant step. It's distressing to me to think that you have 170 some countries in Paris who can all look at science and say climate change is real, and then you come to Congress, and you go to the science and technology committee is a great place to start, and you see many people who deny not just the science of climate change, but science in general. This is the battle we fight at home. I was proud when I was in Congress to work on legislation and support efforts to uh, address our our climate challenge. It is one of the greatest risks to our country. Uh, And don't take my word for it, if you look at the Naval Intelligence, their strategic plan, they have that at the top of their list of concerns as threats to our nations, national security threats. Uh, I support the Uh, President's uh, Clean Power Plan, his effort to uh, reduce carbon emissions in this country that's got to be a piece of it. It has to include uh, support for alternative energies. I I supported when I was in Congress uh, um, uh, subsidies uh, for wind power, other alternative energies, solar. It's going to have to be an all-of-the- above strategy for sure until we develop the new technologies that allow us to move finally at some point completely off of fossil fuels but we have to make sure that the market mechanisms are there. I do support market mechanisms to promote alternative energies and hopefully to control um, emissions.
3: Uh, the banner headline in, I believe, yesterday's New York Times suggested that uh, prolonged um, low prices for crude oil, $20, 25 $30 a barrel, will potentially uh, run roughshod over the Paris Agreement. Because as a cheap source of energy, countries will be reluctant to invest in more expensive uh, forms of uh, renewable energy. So I go back to my original question. Uh, If the cost of a barrel of oil remains very low, would you support a carbon tax in order to encourage renewables?
2: I think a carbon tax is an example of a market mechanism. And I think there's ways we can use the market that will create incentives for companies and consumers to lower their their emissions. Yes.
3: Okay. One uh, second quick follow-up. We learned last year that uh, China's emissions levels were actually much higher than they had been originally reporting, which comes as no surprise to anyone. Uh, What happens uh, two, three, five years down the road? You're back in Congress And we discover that uh, China is not even coming close to meeting its targets. And uh, some people begin to argue that they're gaining market share in the economy because they're simply not making the investments necessary to transition to renewable energies. What do you do as a member of Congress in terms of legislation to try to affect China's thinking?
2: So one of the criticisms of the Paris Agreement is while it set these very important goals and for the first time acknowledged on an international stage that climate change is real, it doesn't have the enforcement mechanisms. I think there are things that we can do in the United States through, through Congress to try to create enforcement mechanisms or incentives, if you will. If it, China wants to do business with the United States, if any country wants to do business with the United States, we need to hold them to very stringent environmental standards, stringent labor standards. Those are things that we can do in Congress to create the dynamic. But there's another p- thing, a piece of work. If you watch the news of what's coming out of China, young families are leaving China in droves, certainly leaving the big cities in Beijing and, and, and Shanghai, because it's unhealthy for their children. They're suffering from a brain drain. They're going to be challenged to address the issue of climate change, because if they don't, their economy is going to be hurt as well.
4: So mandatory sentencing and lengthy prison terms and the war on drugs are policies that are highly criticized by Democrats today, but Democrats actually supported these pretty strongly in the 1980s and the 90s. And so the party bears some responsibility for our nation's high incarceration rate. Add to that prosecutorial misconduct and police brutality, and the result is a disproportionate number of African-American and Latino men caught up in the American prison system. Uh, It's clearly going to be a signature piece for President Obama's last year in office What do you have to say specifically about how to address this disparity?
2: So let me start with saying I hope it is a signature piece of this last year because we're long overdue for justice reform. I think it's critical. Uh, Let me take a quick aside to introduce some uh, special people in the audience. Uh, We have our current coroner, coroner, Lake County Coroner, Tom Rudd is here. We have a a candidate for Judge Mitchell Hoffman is here. Are there any other candidates in the audience before I forget? I happen to see them and, and want to introduce them. Uh, but we have to have justice reform. Uh, Cook County President Tony Preckwinkle talks a lot about this. She talks about what it costs us to incarcerate a young person in Cook County Jail for a year. It's about $54,000. I'm guessing tuition at Lake Forest is less than that. We could be educating every kid in prison in, Lake, in Cook County Jail getting them ready to be contributing members of our communities rather than incarcerating them. But Let me take it a step further. Why are these young people in jail? Most of them are there for nonviolent crimes. Many for possession of, of, of small amounts of drugs. Most of them are there awaiting bail. Their families or um, friends aren't able to raise the money to get these people out. If they had bail, they wouldn't be there. Most of them are coming from communities without opportunity. The whole spectrum of challenges that these young people face are very different than the people who are here tonight or that we typically meet in our everyday lives. But these are people who, given the chance, could become full, participating, productive members of our communities. We should be investing in our communities to address poverty, has to be a part of it. We have to make sure a lot of the communities in Chicago and even within the, the 10th District of Illinois are communities where the manufacturing firms that used to be here have, e- have either moved offshore or moved out to, out to the suburbs okay? but even for the companies that moved out the suburbs the people who live in these towns don't have transportation to get there so we have to be investing in these communities investing in livable workable communities with mass transit systems that allow them to get to work we have to be making sure that their schools are every bit as good as the schools we all attended so they have the graduate high school with the skills and lessons they need to succeed going directly into career or on to college, whatever they choose. It has to be all a part of those. You talked about prosecutorial misconduct, misconduct police m- uh, misconduct, and you can just look at the Laquan McDonald video that we all saw, I'm sure, and anyone who saw it had to be sickened. We need to make sure that people who behave in the way we saw in that video, people who violate the rights of Americans whether they be young or old, white or black, are prosecuted and are punished to the full extent of the law. The police and the the justice system is there to protect us, not to prosecute us unfairly. And transparency is the best way to make sure that happens. So we need criminal justice reform. The war on drugs, the the war on crime has put people in prison and thrown them away and treated them as though they don't have a chance to contribute to society. I just don't agree with that.
4: Would you support legalization of marijuana?
2: That's a much broader question. I mentioned earlier I come from Colorado. I've (laughs) I've had the chance to watch the impact of the legalization process in Colorado transpire over the last number of years. When medical marijuana first came to Colorado, my parents live in a a neighborhood um, kind of like Lincoln Park here in Chicago. The the street corner or the the block uh, down the street from where they live on all four corners immediately popped up four medical marijuana dispensaries. Just how it happens. Um, Obviously competition they didn't survive. They've gone on now to legalizing uh, recreational marijuana. The expectation was that it was going to create great revenue for the state, that they would uh, not be any any issues with it, they've really struggled. So I believe we need to move forward in addressing the problem of of marijuana in the country. I believe that should be a state issue. I believe let's let the states go through the experimentation and figure out how to get it right and then deal with it on the national level. But I don't believe that someone who's uh, in possession of a little bit of marijuana should be put in jail and have their life completely ruined because of it.
3: So back to foreign relations, Uh, let's talk about uh, international trade. Uh, Late last year, uh, the United States concluded negotiations with 11 other countries in the Pacific Rim, uh, an area covering the Americas as well as Australasia, and the objective here is to lower barriers to trade among these countries. The signatories to this agreement, the so-called Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, designs to promote economic growth and job creation, enhance innovation, and productivity and competitiveness among these countries to raise living standards, to reduce poverty, promote transparency, good government. In effect, free trade is going to do lots of great things for everybody. Uh, Let's assume you are our current member of Congress from the 10th District uh, when this bill comes up for debate, presumably sometime this year. First, how would you vote? And secondly, what is your thought process as to how you would reach that conclusion, well knowing, of course, that the Democratic base is uh, increasingly opposed to free trade
2: agreements? Let me start the answer with this with the basic principle. We are in a global economy. Trade is a critical part of that economy, and the United States has to lead on trade. But it has to be fair trade. It has to be trade that If the United States can compete on a level playing field where we're strong, we have a chance to win, we win, perhaps not every time, because competition, you don't win every game. But we win because we have the best, most productive labor, we have the most innovative workforce. It's got to be fair trade. And as I look at any trade agreement, I'm looking at does it protect American interests? does it reflect and protect American's competitive advantages? Does it raise trade on a global level to our standards, a race to the top, if you will, on labor, on environment, on protection of intellectual property, on currency manipulation, or is it a race to the bottom where there are no rules and labor can be exploited and the environment is disregarded? When I was in Congress, TPP was being negotiated. I had the chance to sit down and read many, although not all, of the chapters in their draft form. I'll explain to you the process just to give you a sense of the the reason I might have serious concerns about the the TPP. It was very secretive. Only I could look at the document, none of my staff. People from the uh, trade office would come to my office. They came with a a canvas briefcase that's locked. It did not have the handcuffs, but it almost did. Four people would come and sit with me. We could talk about the issues with my staff, but until my staff left the office, that briefcase wasn't unlocked. Once they left the office and the door was closed, they would unlock it, they would hand me the draft uh, chapter, and there are 29 chapters of TPP, and they would watch me as I read that. Imagine sitting in a room, reading a legal document, some of them, some of the chapters are shorter, some of them are longer, but the whole thing 6,000 pages, and trying to process and understand it. I have real concerns about the way the trade agreement was being presented to Congress. It is the responsibility of Congress to oversee trade, and it's critical that Congress has its voice heard. That's why this summer I did not support the uh, fast track, the TPA. Now the deal was released last year. As I mentioned, it's no longer draft form, it's final form, but it's 6,000 pages. I'll tell you the same thing I told everyone who came to my office. I believe in trade. I believe in 5% of the global population the United States should see the rest of the world, the other 95%, as a great market opportunity. But it has to be fair trade. I'm going to read the document, I'm going to understand it, and I'll make my decision based on that. But as I look at the document, I want to know that we are protecting standards for labor, the right to organize, the right to bargain collectively, by our standards, not going to the bottom of standards, for example, of Vietnam. That As we try to protect the environment, address climate change, we're doing it in a way that's going to be successful, not a way that says, well, our hands are tied, we can't do it, we tried. That we're going to make sure that intellectual property, if you invent something and you have a, or you write a book, that someone in a faraway country or make a movie can't steal your intellectual property and take away that value from you. And that currency can't be manipulated to affect prices to give other countries unfair advantages to dump their products here. So my process is to study, as I do with all everything I, I did when I was in Congress and when I get back to Congress. I will read the document, all 6,000 pages. Uh, unlike other things, I will probably read this only once. But I will study it, I will understand it, I will talk to the experts, and I will make my decision.
0: We're going to have to wrap the first part of the forum now. And I want to thank our moderators, Professors Moroni and Professor Mark Hart for those questions, and Candidate Schneider. I want to introduce the second part of what we're going to do. So this is the audience question portion. You two are welcome to hang out there, but you're also welcome to um, sit down and take a seat if you prefer. Do they give out grades? What's that? Yes, Um, they give out (laughs) grades. uh, And yes, they do. I'm going to move through the audience with this microphone. And you can raise your hand if you have a question. I will come to you, you do not need to get up to come to me. I'm gonna hold the microphone out to you, but I'm not going to hand you the microphone. Please do not try and take the microphone from me because (laughs) I'm gonna yank it back, okay? You need to limit your question to no more than 30 seconds because we have many people who are going to want to ask questions and if we don't, then we are gonna get to the reception even sooner. We're not going to allow follow up so you get one chance to ask your question, Candidate Schneider will respond, and then we're gonna move on to the next question. I'm saying the word question over and over again because you have to ask a question. Do not make a statement. I'm an academic. I'm used to people just making statements that they're pretending are questions. So ask a question, and if you're clearly not asking a question, I'm gonna just take the microphone away and move on. Please also respect the statement that I read at the beginning, in which I'm now gonna read again just to remind everyone. We ask that you be respectful of the candidate His time in the mission of Lake Forest College. It says in part, "We encourage our students to read critically, reason analytically, communicate persuasively, and above all, to think for ourselves. Think for themselves. As audience members, we may not always like what we hear, and we are free to disagree. But we hold ourselves to high ethical standards for ethical communication. We thank our guests here tonight for their help in further modeling those behaviors." for our students who are here in the audience and for all the people who are watching at home. So I'm really looking forward to this part and we're gonna start that now, so. Good. You look, you wanna say, anything. Can
4: ask also that everyone please state your name?
0: Yes, I forgot about that. And where you live. State your name and where you live before you ask the question, please. So, all right, I'm gonna come around. I'm
2: Mark Paul from Highland Park. Hi, Mark. And, hello. I'd like to pick up on a discussion we had about six weeks ago at the, Democratic, at the 10th Dems meeting. You, opposed, you would not have voted for the Iran agreement. Your opponent in the primary announced that she would have. I asked you then, what would it take for you to change your mind? And I believe one of your questioners, interrogators tonight asked you that and you didn't give much of an answer then, and when I asked you, what you came up with was...
0: Okay, that's 30 seconds, so you gotta let him respond. No, no, everybody gets 30 seconds. So you made your statement,
2: now the candidate can respond. Well, Mark, I I remember the conversation, so I can answer, I, I assume we're gonna continue that conversation, my answer hasn't changed. I had great issues with the deal, as I talked about earlier tonight. I felt that it was going to make it difficult, the way it was structured was going to make it difficult to police and enforce this deal to make sure Iran doesn't move closer to a nuclear weapon, not just for the next 15 years, but the 15 years after that and after that, and that there were aspects of the deal that was going to lead to greater instability in an already very dangerous region. My call, and if you read what I wrote in in August of, of last summer, my call was on the administration to take specific steps to close the debt gaps and reduce the risk. They said without that, I had no choice but to oppose the deal. Look, when the deal was announced, you had people on both sides. This is where I spread my arms. You had people on the one extreme saying, this is the worst deal ever, the world's coming to an end. You had people on the other side saying, it's the best deal ever, everything's fine, we have peace in our time. The fact of the matter, those two extremes had a lot of heat, but not a lot of light. The real conversation was taking place in the middle. There are people like Hillary Clinton who said, I have issues with the deal, but I support the deal, and, and go look at her speech or read her speech that she gave to the Brookings Institution in September. Yes, and, she said, we have to close the gaps and reduce the risk.
0: Okay, we're going to move on to the next question, and you have 30 seconds. I didn't realize I had
2: 30 seconds, too.
4: (laughs) Obviously, your um, steadfast defense of a woman's right to choose and have bodily autonomy is really staggering, and I thank you for that. However, I... Myself and others find it um, pretty remarkable that it's 2016 and women are still making 78 cents on the dollar and women of color are even more disproportionately affected. What would you do to ensure women the dignity of finally having equal pay for equal work?
2: One of the first things I did when I got to Congress was sign on to an act that would ensure women equal pay for equal work. It's totally unacceptable that two people working side by side, shoulder to shoulder, doing the same work, will receive different different compensation, whether it's because of, quite honestly, their education, their gender, or their race. Two people doing the same work, providing the same value, should get the same pay. That's just, I think, a, a simple principle. But there's more to the story. We can do more to make it possible for more men and women to come into the workforce, people with families, young children. We can do more to make sure that they have the skills to get a job that allows them to work one job. We talked about raising the minimum wage rather than having to work two. There's so much we can do to lift up people. For me, it's the difference between me and the Republicans. I don't want any more of this trickle-down economy. We have to have an economy that's growing from the middle out and growing our middle class. This estimate, I saw a study in last spring that said there'll be five billion middle-class people in this world in in 30 years. 86% growth in Africa, 40% or in, in Asia, 40% in Africa, some teen percent in Latin America, minus 5% in North America. We can't continue to lead the world, economically, we can't continue to lead them, I think, morally. If we have a shrinking middle class, we have to grow our middle class. And that means everyone in the middle class, men and women.
0: Okay, we're going to move on to the next question, and I'm just going to bounce back and forth so I'm not clustered in one area, and that's why I'm now standing here.
1: My name is Barb Cornu. Do you believe in the DREAM Act? Would you support it?
2: That was like three seconds, that was great. I'll I'll take your time, please. I absolutely believe in the DREAM Act. Uh, I spent so much, first of all, if I could pass one law tomorrow, the first law I would pass is comprehensive immigration reform. Just from the economic argument, it will add $2 trillion to our economy over the next 20 years, cut our deficit, our debt by $200 billion, but it's the moral argument. It would bring 11 million people out of the shadows to be part of our communities, full and complete part of our communities allow people to buy homes, start businesses, and allow young people to go to college and get the degrees and the opportunities to pursue their dreams. But short of that, anyone who comes here as a child, grows up in our schools, participates in our communities, should have the opportunity. Not just because they deserve it, because we need it. We need everyone to to pursue their dreams and find their success in this country, because other countries are doing it for their young people, and we have to compete with them.
0: Okay, and our next question. State your name.
1: Mark from Highland Park. In the area of gun control, do you think that the restrictions should uh, cover automatic weapons?
2: Yes, I think we should ban the sale of automatic weapons. I can't think of any reason anyone needs a military assault weapon. I can't think of a reason anyone needs a magazine that holds 50 or 100 bullets. The fact that someone could go into a theater in Colorado and in less than a minute fire off 70 bullets and kill dozens of people, and wound dozens of people, is unacceptable. But that's only part of the solution of what we have to do to address gun violence in our communities. We need universal background checks. Universal background checks will help us keep guns out of the hands of criminals, of gang members, of terrorists, of people with a history of domestic violence, and people with a history of men- certain types of mental illness. We need to work on gun safety. The sixth group I worry about are young people who pick up guns left al- outside by their parents in their car or in their home. And how often do you hear the story about someone being shot by a toddler or someone taking a gun to school and shooting a friend there's so many things we can do but we also have to invest in mental health services we have to invest in strengthening our com- communities and, and securing our schools no one should go to school fearful of being shot just in the same way that no one should go to a movie worrying that they're going to be shot there
0: okay we want to get a few
3: student questions please too. Um, hello my name is Ber- my name is Bernardo i'm student here at lake forest and i would like to know a little bit more about your stand in uh, government surveillance and why exactly did you vote against the Amash Amendment?
2: So I voted against the Amash Amendment because I didn't think it gave us the proper balance of security and personal liberties. But as a nation, we have to achieve that balance. Right? There are a lot of people out there who want to hurt us. You need no look, look no further than what happened in San Bernardino. We need to make sure that those who are seeking to do harm are not allowed or able to have a free path to that. But at the same time, we need to make sure that we protect what was defined in our Constitution, but given to us by God, the rights and liberties to privacy, to security. There's no reason we can't find that balance between our security and our privacy. That's why I did vote to end the collection of telephone metadata by the NSA. All right? I believe we can do the balance, but I, have, I believe we have to do it in a very structured way. Okay, and and I'll next... point out that Jan Schakowsky voted the same way as I did on that bill. Thank you. Our next question is over here.
4: Hi, my name is Jocelyn Fano, and I live in Lincolnshire. And my question is, do you believe that we should strengthen our relations with Israel?
2: Uh, absolutely, of course. Uh, Israel is the United States' most important ally in a very dangerous region. And the United States is Israel's most important ally in the entire world. But it's a strategic relationship. The benefits go both ways. I've had the privilege of working on promoting a strong U.S.-Israel relationship literally for my entire life since I was in high school. I went to Washington in the 1990s to fight against the Bush administration who is threatening to end loan guarantees for Israel. I've advocated for over two decades trying to prevent Iran from having a nuclear weapon. I helped bring legislation and when I was in Congress I helped introduce and pass legislation that funded Iron Dome, David Sling, and, and the Arrow anti missile projects. Three levels of missile technology that aren't just going to protect Israel from threats in her region, but are going to protect Americans in conflicts all around the world. The U.S. Israel relationship is critical to me. I'm proud of the work I've done. That's why Steny Hoyer pulled me to be part of that committee I talked about earlier. That's why members of Congress still to this day call me and ask for my thoughts on how we can strengthen that relationship. I was asked today in an editorial board, what would I say to Israel to give them confidence in our relationship? I would tell them that the relationship between the United States and Israel is incredibly strong, that the American people and the American Congress understand the importance of the us israel relationship and will always fight to protect that. I'm committed to that. I'm proud of the role I played when I was in Congress, and I'm excited to get back to Congress and continue that work.
0: Thank you, and our next question is coming from this side of the room.
1: My name is Vicki, I'm from Buffalo Grove. What should be done to combat climate change in this
2: country? Uh, To combat?
1: Climate change.
2: Climate change. Well, we talked about it earlier this evening. First of all, it's let's have the honest conversation that climate change is real, and that it is not just a future threat, to our country, but a clear and present threat today. And Let's start talking about how do we bring down emissions? How do we change the way we relate to energy? How do we find new sources of energy so ultimately we can be completely free of fossil fuels? This is gonna be an ongoing process, but it's not something we can afford to start tomorrow. We should have started it yesterday, but I'm committed to making sure we start working on it today.
3: Hello, my name is John. Uh, I'm a senior, sorry, I'm a senior here So in 1964, the youth voting rate was roughly 51%. In the 2012 election, it was roughly 38%, which is about a 20% drop over the years. Do you have any proposals to try to reverse that trend?
2: I do, but let me throw a number back, and I'll throw it out to everybody. Does anyone know what the highest turnout for the Iowa Democratic Caucus was, what percent of turnout? I heard 14, 12, 5. I I heard this this morning. It was 16 percent when uh, in 2008 when Barack Obama won the Iowa caucus. Right? Um, We have a problem in this country with turnout, not just but in particular with young people. We need to work on bringing more people into the electoral process. In 2014, 80 some thousand fewer voters, more than 80 thousand fewer voters, turned out to the polls than in 2012. That's unacceptable. It's one of the reasons that we weren't able to win the election. In other countries, you see turnout rates of 60 and 70 percent. In the United States, for primaries were 15, 16, and in general elections, we're happy if it gets over 50. One of the things I would like to see us get back to, and they're talking about in Illinois, and I'm proud to be on the advisory board of something called the Civic Leadership Foundation, is bringing civics education back into our schools so that young people, beginning at a young age, understand that they have a stake. Because part of the people, part of the reason people don't vote is they think it doesn't matter to them. We have to demonstrate that it does. The 80,000 people who didn't turn out in 2014 that were there in 2012, I wonder if they had turned out if we might have a different situation in Springfield with our governor. You look at what happens when people don't vote and the consequences it has not just for what the, is happening on the TV, but for the real policy, from our infrastructure, education systems, our economy, our environment, it's having a detrimental effect. The other thing, and you didn't ask about this, but let me jump, and I'm going to ask the question so I get another 30 seconds, what would I do about campaign finance? But you just use
0: five seconds.
2: So the other thing we have to do is we have to uh, take care of Citizens United, because money in politics is distorting the system, and it is making it... They took two seconds, I want it back to finish. Money in politics is distorting our system, and it's making it more and more likely that people say, I don't have a voice, therefore I'm not going to vote, and we have to fix that.
0: It was a very effective use of time. All right, next question.
4: Uh, My name is Anusha. I'm from Buffalo Grove. Uh, My question is, do you support same-sex marriage?
2: So I talked about my grandmother Molly being the wisest person I know. When I got married to Julie in 1989, and we got married here in, in Chicago, My cousin, Mark, who's 14 years older than me, was moving out to live with his then-partner, Buzzy, uh, in Seattle. And my mother's sister, Maureen, who's 10 years older than her, was having trouble dealing with him. My My grandmother, Molly, who was born in 1907, in 1989, had the wisdom to say, why would you be any less happy for your son, Mark, moving to be with who he loves, than you are for your nephew, Brad, moving to be with whom he loves? For me, it's never been a question. Two people who love each other, who want to make a life together, who want to build a home, have the same experience that I have had for the last 26 years with my wife, Julie, deserve the right to commit to each other. That commitment deserves to be called marriage, period. I campaigned on this in 2012. I am proud, more than I can tell you, that as we sit here and we talk about it in 2016, it is the law of the land. Thank
0: you. Our next question.
2: Tom Tom Rudd from Lake Forest. Quick question. I'm not going to ask you who you're going to vote for, but who do you most closely align to for the presidential primary? Very clever. No, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure there's as much difference between the two as the rhetoric would indicate. Right. Let's look at some of the policies. Do I believe that everyone should have access to quality, affordable health care? 100%. Do I believe that we shouldn't tear apart the Affordable Care Act and start over? I believe that as well. Do I believe that the financial system is rigged and we're moving increasingly towards a country of have lots and have nots? A hundred percent. And I believe that the best way to break that cycle is to move to an economy that is growing from our middle class. Investing in manufacturing, education, innovation, infrastructure. I joke, with my team when we come in the office. Every night I watch the news and I say, he's stealing my idea, she's stealing my idea. I'll tell you that I align in principle with both of them very, very much. I'll tell you this, whoever is our nominee, and I will tell you who I'm supporting because I've come out publicly, I believe our next president is going to be the first woman president of the United States. But whoever is the nominee is going to be a better president than anyone else that the other side would try to nominate. And that's our trump card.
0: Oh. All right. Our next question. Uh, Sean Menke. I'm a professor here at Lake
3: Forest. You mentioned poor voter turnout, so my question is, does Congress or should Congress play a role in guaranteeing it by changing gerrymandering rules, such that a lot of people do feel dispossessed of their vote. Because of the way we draw districts, their vote really doesn't matter.
2: So let me state the principle before I give the answer you don't want. Um, we have to fix the way districts are drawn in this country because it is a one of the great sources of the uh, partisanship we see in Congress and the inability to get anything done. We also have to uh, change, I would like to see us make voting easier, there's all kinds of things. But by Constitution, my understanding anyway, and I'm an engineer, not a lawyer, but by Constitution I believe that it is the states that draw the districts, it can't be a federal decision. But we have... That's why I can't give you the answer you want. But I think we have to do that. There is a group working on that in Illinois. Uh, There are things that have happened in other states. By the way, it's not just the the gerrymandering. The jungle primaries you see in California and Oregon and and, in Washington State um, are really interesting. And just for those of you who don't know, the primary in these states is is an open primary. There are Republicans and Democrats running together, and the two highest vote-getters go on to the general, which... I would have to believe in our case would be Nancy and me, not Bob, but you never. But it, it, it creates a, a whole different dynamic. I think there's lots of things we can and must do. I think, I'll take a, a step back to Congress. I think there are things Congress can do to help that process along because if some states do the right thing and you start having more centrist members and more competitive House races, there's only 12 competitive races in the country. What happens in this district is almost unique. There aren't a lot of districts like that. If more states have the um, more dynamism in their politics, then the states that have less dynamism because of the seniority system are going to, just by nature of time, accrue more power. And other states are going to say, wait, it's against our interests. So I think there are things that you can do in Congress to address that specific issue among others. But as far as gerrymandering, that's going to have to happen state by state.
0: Okay, our next question is over here in the back.
2: I'm Ravi from Lincolnshire. uh, With a lot of people working in minimum wage, they're not going to take time off to go vote should election day be a holiday. I think that would be a good idea. We could move election day to a weekend. We can extend election day so it's more than one election day, make early voting easier, have vote by mail, more accessible. In Oregon, there is an election day. You have to send your ballots in, in in by mail. I am open to any idea that will lead us to greater turnout in voting. If we get more people involved in the process, we'll get better people elected. If we get better people elected, we'll get a more effective government. That will draw more people into government who are capable and able to make the choices and decisions we need to see. So anything we can do that will increase turnout, I'm willing to consider it. And and if it works, if it has a prospect of working, willing to try it.
0: Okay, our next question.
1: Hi, Julie Nowak from Gray's Lake. In the event that a bill would get introduced into Congress that puts a price on carbon back on climate change here, mm-hmm. um, how do you see those revenues being used? Do you see them being returned back to households as dividends, uh, used for tax swaps, or some other application?
2: One thing to notice so when I take any idea or thought, I try to think of what are the principles that are gonna drive me to an answer. One of the things that I believe is a principle is from the accounting principle of matching costs and expenses. Um, for example, taxes on cigarettes, I w- would like to see more of those dollars go to our health care system because smoking puts such a burden on our health care system. So my first approach, and I'd have to, before I look at it, I, I'd give a position on any bill, I'd have to see what the bill is, but the conceptual idea of revenues taken in, the first place I would look to apply those revenues would be where there are costs to the system because of carbon, you know, and and smoothing it it out that way. Maybe that's investing in wind energy, or solar energy, or other alternative energies. Um, Again, depending on the the way it's structured, depending how much money you're talking about, that may be enough, that may be only partial. If it's more than enough, then you look at other things. But that's the approach I would take to it.
0: Okay, we're back over here. Evan Oxman, I teach at the college. Um, So you get less than (laughs) 36. It may be a cliche, but many people say today that one of the reasons there's such a lack of civility in Washington is that Republican and Democrats don't talk anymore
3: uh, the way they used to. People go home to their districts uh, rather than spending the, the week and perhaps having dinner or having a drink. So um, rather than asking you how do we improve that civility, I wonder, when you
2: were in Congress, did you have any Republican friends? <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, The answer is yes, I did, and one of my closest friends. I don't want to say one of my, some of my best friends are Republicans, but one of my closest friends, uh, a fellow freshman, happened to be a Republican. He also happened to be one of the most far out the Republicans. We found the best way to be friends is not to talk politics, but talk about our kids and our families, because they're all people. And I think this is one of the strengths I bring. I can sit down and talk to anybody. I have said before, and I'll say it here again, I'll work with anybody. I don't care what side of the aisle you're coming from. I have three requests, almost requirements. That you come to the conversation, that kind of reflects your motto here, that you come with an open mind, please come with ideas, and most importantly, come with a commitment to work together to solve the problems we face. And if we do that, I think we can find common ground on almost any issue. You talked about the civility, and and, and there's a a number of theories out there, and having been there now, I can tell you that I I agree with them. One of the things uh, Tom Daschle and Trent, Trent Lott are out with, uh, pushing a book that they've written together, it's Trent Lott saying that people should move to Washington, they should spend more time there. One of the theories is it's hard to do this job in three days, which is true. I think being there for five days would be a increase in productivity. But being there, people moving their families there, going to ballet recitals or basketball games and, and sitting in the, the bleachers watching your children... Remember my rule with my friend. We didn't talk politics. You talk about the game. You talk. Going to a, a hockey or a basketball game in, when your home team comes in creates that dynamic. And in the course of those conversations, maybe you'll find you have common ground. Maybe you'll find that, as I did with Tom Massey from Kentucky, who is a dual engineer from MIT. He's also extremely far right, lives off the grid. You know, what see probably guys. But we found common interest in infrastructure because we spoke the same language about infrastructure. But you have to be able to create the dynamic to have those conversations. And I think there are things that we can and should do to address that.
0: We're gonna have time for one more question and this is our questioner and then we're gonna give the Congressman an opportunity if he wishes to make a brief closing uh, remarks of no more than two minutes. So this is our last official question.
1: Margaret Lindsay from Highland Park. I wonder if you could tell us what distinguishes you from your opponent in this primary race.
2: Uh, I'm going to use that question as my closing remark, so, th- so right. thank you. Um, I'm very proud of my record having served in Congress. I've been there. I know how to stand up and take the fight. I'm very proud of the fact that my, the people I work for here in the district, thousands of people who have signed on as endorsements, hundreds of elected officials, mayors, county board members, county presidents, state representatives, but also the people i worked with in Washington, appreciate the work I did in a comparatively short two years to believe that I have, I deserve to go back and continue that work. I think what distinguishes me first is the experience I have. I know how the system works when, when the new, new president, president comes, comes in whether, whether it's, it's Bernie, Bernie or, or Hillary, you know I left off Martin O'Malley, I'm sorry, sorry. Or or Martin, Martin O'Malley. O'Malley. The first 18 months to find the agenda. I can hit the ground running making sure that that agenda is moving forward. Versus Bob Dold, who's going to stand in, in the way of the agenda every way he can, as do all the Republicans. Because they don't want to see, and we've seen this already, they don't want to see a Democrat succeed. So experience is a key thing. I think the connection I have to the people of this district, you know, we were at dinner last night, and uh, Adam and I were at dinner last night in Waukegan. And I walked in and everyone was saying hello and people came up and invited me to their, um, fat cat rescue dinner on February 6th and he says does this happen to you everywhere you go and I smiled I said it's very flattering but yes it does because the people in the district know me and they know they can approach me and they know that I have their interests at my heart and that I've been committed already to working to go there to go to Washington and fight for their priorities I'm very proud of that I'm very proud of the fact that I won in 2012 the first Democrat to win this district in 32 years I want it because I believe the people of the district understood that I better represent the values and priorities of the vast majority of voters in the 10th district than Bob Dold. The question about voter turnout breaks my heart that we couldn't get our voters to the polls in 2014. We'll do that in 2016. And I think the fact that so many people appreciate the work that I've been doing on their behalf, that they agree with what I said earlier, that this district was better served by the people I brought together working in this district, and better represented by the votes I took in Washington. Those are the reasons why I think I deserve your support, and those are the reasons why I think the people of the 10th district are going to carry us together to victory in November. So let me thank you all for coming out. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate these questions. I wish we had more time to talk. Mark, I'm happy to talk and finish the answer um, over coffee. But thank you for being here. Davis, Jim, Siobhan, thank you. Thank you. Those are good questions. And I hope I pass and, and can go to the next grade up.
0: Congressman Shanger thank you for being with us here tonight.